Joel, I had a meeting with NASCAR Xfinity driver Kyle Weatherman. He is a really interesting character. I have never talked to a NASCAR driver before. Uh, super talented. And we went to watch the race this weekend up in New... Well, when you hear this, it's been a week past, but it was up in New Hampshire, which is fascinating. I haven't been that close to a NASCAR race before. I've watched it on television for years, but i never really been to one. It, it was really cool. It's loud and powerful. And there were a couple of really significant accidents uh, right right in front of us near the start-finish line. It was quite the uh, scare there at the end, uh, but it, it, a really, really good time. So we're just going to keep track of him uh, the next couple of months. It's just interesting to talk to somebody who actually races cars for a living. It's it's pretty cool. Kind of like being a lightning engineer. The coolest. So this week we talk about a woman being hit by a meteorite in France, and then uh, GE and Toshiba are partnering together in Japan to make nacelles, which is really cool. And the state of Louisiana taking advantage of its three-mile uh, economic zone uh, to install some offshore wind down there. And then we're going to stay in the offshore wind world and take a peek at the auction that just happened over in Germany. And we do call it an auction instead of negative bidding uh, via Rosemary. Um, and then also staying again in the offshore world uh Rigitech or Rigatech, uh, we're not really sure which one it is, but uh, drone deliveries, right? From the vessel all the way up to the nacelle, uh, dropping parts, and most importantly, lunches off to technicians up there. And we're going to talk about the Jones Act with suspicions that foreign flag vessels might be being used instead of US-made ones in, uh, off the US coast. We're going to talk about Shopify's plans to reduce uh, the waste of meetings with unnecessary people involved. And our wind farm of the week this week is the Fowler Wind One Upgrade. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with the vice president of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum, and international renewables expert, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Well, Rosemary, a French woman was hit by a meteorite while having coffee on a terrace with a friend in, in France, obviously. Uh, at first, they thought it may have been a piece of cement that had fallen off the roof or maybe an animal of some sort. But <laughs> they took the, the rocket for analysis and realized that it was a meteorite. Now, the chances of getting hit by a meteorite have got to be infinitesimally small. However, it has already happened once before. In, of all places, Joel, can you guess the state in which this occurred? <laughs> I would say somewhere out like Utah or something like that. You're close. Alabama. The first, one of the first recorded incidents of a meteorite directly impacting a human was in 1954 when an eight-pound meteorite crashed to the roof in Alabama, leaving a woman with a severe bruise. <laughs> you know, you know... Fact is stranger than fiction at times, and I I, I do wonder. Have you seen some of the meteorite pictures that have been on uh, LinkedIn and and Twitter lately? Like, man, there's a lot of meteorites, and I I wonder once in a while, did any of this stuff ever hit a turbine? Like Joel, have you ever seen a meteorite? Like, wonder like that's a really big bird, or that's a rock <laughs> from space? No. I did listen to a good a good Joe Rogan podcast this weekend about a meteorite that possibly had struck Greenland in the year like twelve thousand BC, and it, and and if it's true, it will have changed 
history of mankind as we know it. And it would have actually been a longer history of people in the, or of, of inhabitants of North America, whereas we think that the Kratom civilization was in Mesopotamia. Now, now it's possible that it was actually in the Americas. A meteorite took us all out. Is that what you're saying? Took out the North Americans? It's possible. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you, you learn stuff on podcasts, just like on this podcast, right? Occasionally. I think it's wild that this woman got hit by a rock and thought to take the rock and send it off for analysis. So, you know, like you think that it's super rare, but given that it's not just that you need to be hit by a meteorite, you need to realize that that's what it was and send it for confirmation. Maybe it's actually super common because it wouldn't occur to me to send off a, a, a rock for, you know, unless you saw it coming from the, from the sky from a long way away, um, you wouldn't... You wouldn't think to send that off to a lab. I mean, if you get hit by rocks, do you do you collect them and send them to a lab for analysis? It does feel sort of men in blackish. You know what I mean? Well, in Japan, Toshiba and GE are striking another partnership, and Toshiba and GE have been working together for quite a number of years, off and on. They plan to bring a supply chain together for nacelles, which. Uh, they don't have in Japan right now. You know, remember Mitsubishi was building wind turbines and stopped, and Hitachi was building wind turbines and stopped. So there really isn't any wind turbine uh, large components that are manufactured in Japan at the moment. Uh, but with the Toshiba plan, they plan to bring on 100 smaller suppliers with the goal of increasing domestic procurement to 60% by value by 2040. So they're going to stand up a number of local companies to help make nacelles uh, for GE. It looks like they're for GE Designs. Uh, and this article is really fascinating because I think it may be indicative of a, a really unique way of trying to stand up industry very quickly to get more offshore capacity. And we, at the same time that that's happening in Japan, they're supposed to be ready by like 2026, right? Uh, and they're talking about delivering some turbines in the Akita prefecture in 2028 that would be manufactured there. It's quick. Yeah, it's pretty quick, right? Joel, like, can we, are we, we're not doing the, the same level of uh, infrastructure building in the United States, even though we're probably pouring a lot more money into it. It seems like the initiatives are more sort of company driven and, or maybe company and government driven where they're working together a little bit closer. I think if you look at it in a general incentive laden way, in the U.S., the IRA bill is like a carrot in front of the horse, right? And in and in my and now, I don't do a lot of business in Japan, so I don't know the culture or the business culture that well. But this to me sounds like more like it's kind of a, a foot in the ass to the horse. Like we're gonna we're gonna be with you. We're gonna get you going. You're gonna you're gonna do it, right? Like it's it's a little bit more a little bit more um, hands on from the government side. Than it is we're in the U.S. are just like, hey, free market, we're going to give you a carrot, see what you do with it. It's there, see what happens. And it kind of hasn't really come. I mean, it has. We've It's come to fruition a bit. But I think that if you want to mobilize quicker, you got to get deep into it. Now, that kind of model, private to public, doesn't really work in the United States. That's not how things go. But in other um, economic situations, that does, right? Japan being a good one. And now the other thought of mine goes, you know, a few years ago, there was MHI. MHI was making some offshore turbines. They got with Vestas, MHI Vestas, right? That didn't work out too well, but they, so they separated. However, those people that from Mitsubishi, MHI's Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, those people from Mitsubishi still may have some of that expertise, right? So it may be easier for them to, to blow up here by involving 
or blow up, grow up this 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 uh, idea by involving some of those people that were involved in MHI Vestas before. Yeah, and it makes sense. Uh, the Japanese government has set a goal of having 30 to 45 gigawatts of offshore wind power installed by 2040, with the domestic operators accounting for 16% of the related investment. So they're looking for a Japan-based solution to Japan energy. That's amazing. That's proper thing to me. It's energy security, right? It sure is, right? I, 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 this is just unique. So, Rosemary, here's a question for you. Now, like uh, we know that offshore wind has been proposed, is in this, these early planning stages in Australia. Has the Australian government came forward and said, hey, for offshore wind, these are the kind of things that we're going to do to try to do, get some more local content in, or are they still down there kind of relying on more of the free market capital idea? Um, the Queensland government, so you know, the northeast state of Australia, has um, announced some plan for manufacturing wind turbines in that state, although that's for onshore. I don't think Queensland has too much um, offshore plans because the, the southern bit of the state is um, yeah, covered by the, the Great Barrier Reef, and I don't think there's a lot of offshore wind farms planned in and amongst that. Um, but I, I tried to find out what they meant by that because, you know, you can be quite tricky. Politicians love to be tricky about saying, you know, we manufacture this or that, but, um, you know, there's a lot of things that count as manufacturing. Like in Australia, we love to say how we used to have a car manufacturing industry, but really by the end, the last couple of decades, it was assembling <laughs> components that came from overseas. Primarily it was, a, you know, the, the last little bit of assembly. I, I would struggle to call that manufacturing really. Um, so, yeah, does it mean we're going to get a wind turbine blade factory? I, I doubt it. Um, on the other hand, you know, we are already manufacturing some parts of, um, of a wind turbine. Uh, you know, some of the steel components uh, are made here. Um, and yeah, obviously, you know, when you actually put the turbine together, that's got to happen on site. So that's got to happen locally, you know, so you could easily, like as a politician saying, yeah, we're supporting Australian manufacturing. You could say that without actually doing anything. Um, and so I guess I'm a huge cynic and when I, I, I you know, I have quite some contacts in Australian manufacturing, um, and I, you know, asked a few people and no one, no one had heard any detail um, at all beyond the little one sentence announcement. And so, yeah, I would suggest that the answer is no, there aren't, aren't big plans for doing that. Well, in Louisiana, we may have a, a, a sort of a Japan-based approach. A Danish firm, Vestas, is planning to build wind farms off Cameron and St. Mary's parishes in Louisiana. Now, remember, federal waters start at about three miles offshore. So anything within three miles of shore belongs to the states. Well, Louisiana is going to act on that, and uh, they want to become a national leader for nearshore wind energy development and with at least five wind farm proposals in its waters. So they're already talking to five different operators, OEMs, about putting wind farms in. Uh, Vestas, which is operating as Cajun Wind in Louisiana, I think that's so funny, <laughs> is, in the, is in negotiations with the state for potential offshore wind farms uh, with, you know, Vestas knows what they're doing, right? Uh, but the, the key is, if, if you're not in federal waters, Louisiana gets to control everything. So there's a lot less bureaucracy. Uh, Louisiana's going to set the rules. You're only a couple miles from shore, so there's a lot less cabling. It's a lot easier to put 
things in the water. It's in, it's in the Gulf of Mexico, Joel. It's, isn't it, it's not that deep three miles out, right? It's the, where the Louisiana Delta comes out, the, basically the whole state. It's very shallow for a long ways. Um, and the, the thing that they've got going on there as well is the, the, the Cajun Navy. They, they really know how to operate in those waters. There's a lot of really good mariners there. So the only other wind farm that's like that in the States, I think, is Block Island. Is Block Island pretty close to Rhode Island, right? So I think it's in their state waters. Yeah, I think it also is going to take into consideration like, okay, so yes, if you are within three miles, that's great. And then you're in state-controlled waters. However, if you try to put a wind farm in the middle of a shipping channel that affects you know, the, the national economics, then you're not going to be able to, right? So I think that there may be a little bit more um, federal oversight on Block Island, first off, it's the first wind farm in, in the water. However, it's also in an area that's heavily traveled. There's a lot of a lot of this area here off the coast of Louisiana, and I don't know exactly where they're putting these, but a lot of that area is very remote. Like it's it's not used for much. There's a lot of commercial fishing down there, commercial fishing and commercial shrimping. Uh, if anybody ever has ever seen, you know, of course, Bubblegum and Tom Hanks out there. That was in Louisiana. A lot of, sh- lot of shrimp boats. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think, it, to be honest with you, it'd be pretty easy to put them in. It's shallow water, too. So why wouldn't other states take this Louisiana approach, especially down south? Um, I think pushback from the locals, right? If you, do, if you try to do this in Louisiana, a lot of the coast of Louisiana is just marshland, swamps, islands. There's like little fishing cam- camps and stuff out in the middle. There's like not a whole lot there. If you try to do it on the coast of Texas and you're within three miles, there's beaches the whole way, of the whole, well, almost the whole coast of Texas, right? Well, does that drive the size of the wind turbines that they would, in theory, install? Would they keep it closer to a two megawatt machine instead of a 15 megawatt machine because it's so close to shore? I don't know if it maybe maybe an eight or an eight or ten, but I don't I don't know if they want to go through the trouble of laying cable and all that stuff if that big better technology or the larger technology exists. They just want to go for it. Rosemary, are there are there issues with that being near shore? You know, it seems like everything's really onshore up high or way out in the waters. What's why are not other places looking at near shore? Um, I think it is around. I remember uh, actually applying for a job that was specifically going to be about nearshore um and that was back in 2020 so uh you know it's an idea that's been around for a while i guess it it maybe the term is a bit fuzzy but what i understood it to mean back then was it's a it's offshore you know it's a, a water water location but the water's shallow enough that you can use onshore turbines there um, so it was really about, you know, take uh, an existing onshore platform and make minimal changes so that you can install it offshore. Um, and yeah, you're trying to keep it as, as close as possible to the you know, proven design and existing, um, you know, supply chain. But of course it's a, it is still a marine environment. So you have to deal with, um, corrosion and, um, yeah, a few a few other things. Um, obviously, the foundation is going to be different, but it's more similar to onshore than it is to offshore. Anyway, that's that's the ones that I was working on. But I could imagine that somebody else could call it nearshore, and it just you know is an offshore turbine that turbine that happens to be um, installed relatively close to land, um, and you know that would be fair enough to call that nearshore too. So yeah, I, I don't know the area. You you guys probably can tell me how, what the you know the water depth is out there as to which of those two options they're talking about. 
you can run 50 kilometers off the shore of, uh, of Louisiana and still only be in 10 meters of water, 20 meters of water. So it's pretty, it's pretty shallow most of the way out because it's one big delta. I would suspect it's the same, the same definition then that, um, that I was talking about. Is scour a problem when you do that? It just seems to because the tide's rolling in and out and it's so shallow. Do you start worrying about? Tides aren't really a problem there though. I mean, there, there's tides of course, but the tide swing is a couple feet. Your, pro your problem is hurricanes, to be honest with you, right? That's the problem. Small problem. Yeah, just a small problem. But the, as far as tides go, no, not really that bad of an issue. Um, you're gonna, the, the geotechnics are, are complex because it is a delta, right? So it's just, it's just a lot of silt that's been dumped there over millions of years. It's all in the Mississippi River dumping everything in there, right? Is there a bottom to it? There's a bottom, but it's a ways down. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was wondering. Do you have to power drive, basically do a huge monopow to get down to something that's secure? A lot of times they use a jacket with deep suction piles on it. Okay. All right. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. It's like a jacket, but instead of having a suction pile that's only a couple meters long, you'll have like a 10 meter long one and you'll put big zip pumps on it to suck the water and mud out and get that thing to really anchor itself down. Does that work for hurricanes too? Uh, the foundations will stay. I can guarantee you that because they've been, they've been out there for, on oil and gas platforms for years, right? Uh, it's the, it's the blades that I worry about. Yeah, Rosemary, it's the blades. It's always the blades. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS, so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Well, over in Wind Europe, uh, they are really concerned about the German offshore bid system that just happened where they got into negative bidding. And negative bidding means that the bidders are paying the government money for the rights to secure that that, that plot of ocean. Can I just interject and say, isn't it weird to call that negative bidding? Like if I go to a, a an auction for a house, expect they're going to pay me to live there. <laughs> you know, like that a regular auction is where you, you, you know, you figure out who's prepared to pay the most for something. And that's exactly what we have here. So I think what the term they're looking for is an auction. Let's, <laughs> we don't have to, we don't have to use their weird, weird terminology that makes it sound like this is a crazy concept that you would pay for the right to use a bit of land. I 100% agree. Alan and I said that the other day. I said, this doesn't make any sense. It should not be called negative bidding. I don't get it. Well, it's all in the spin, right? If you can control the language, you can control the outcome. And if they can define it as negative. Yeah, but they don't need to control our language. Let's just step in and just accept that this is this is an auction. <laughs> Rosemary's uh, coming with editorial control. We are now calling it an auction. So the German auction caused a lot of consternation with Wind Europe because they spent about 12 billion euros for the rights to develop four sites uh, to create seven gigawatts of power. Now, the European Union is trying to create a competitive environment and trying to grow their own renewables. And what Wind Europe is saying is like, look, if you're, if you're paying 12 billion euros, that money comes from somewhere and it's not going to the manufacturers of the equipment. It's going to the governments and it's it's not helping the industry grow. 12 billion, 12 billion euros to the industry would help it grow. So you're not going to meet your targets unless you put all that money 
into your manufacturing capacity. I think that makes sense. They're screaming and going, give us the subsidies, give us the subsidies, give us the subsidies. That's what they're saying. Yeah. And I mean, that makes that, that makes sense that they would be asking for that. And in that sense, it's not very new, newsworthy that, yeah, uh, industry body wants subsidies. But I do think that they could better use instead of, um, you know, having people compete um, how much money they're prepared to pay for it. Maybe you could have them compete on other aspects that are maybe more beneficial to the future growth of the industry. You know, you could compete on how much local manufacturing it's going to involve, um, compete on, I don't know, how many environmental protections that you have, or, you know, there's all sorts of other things that you could compete on. I'm not trying to say what they should be, but, you know, you could choose something else that, because we, we do see that manufacturers are, are really hurting and um, yeah, I've been having calls with some Australian wind energy developers recently and, um, you know, people and investors as well. And they're asking me, you know, is wind, is wind energy, um, is it about to fail? Are we going to, you know, just see the industry explode and we won't have wind energy in 10 years time? It'll be only solar. People are actually starting to worry about the future viability of the industry and I, I you know I'm always saying of course we're going to still have wind energy it's super hard to, to you know just rep, uh, do everything with solar so I don't think that's a problem but I also say I would bet money that all of the OEMs we have now will not exist in 10 years time maybe even five years time I think that you know like the squeeze that's on now is not going to be survivable by everyone and it might take some you know big failures before um, governments start to realize, oh, actually, you know, cheaper prices is good, getting more, um, getting paid money by developers to, you know, install an offshore wind farm. That sounds good, but uh, not if we, yeah, squeeze suppliers to the point where they're going to fail and they can't actually deliver those wind farms um, because we need them. So, you know, it'd be crazy if today wind um, developers and, you know, in effect, manufacturers as well are giving money to the government. And then in a couple of years time, the governments are spending more money to bail out companies that have gone bankrupt. I mean, that's not like an efficient way to, to use that money, right? You'd be better off to look in your crystal ball and see the obvious future. It's the movie uh, Too Big to Fail, right? Yeah, but we can stop it. We can see it now. Exactly. You can see, okay, we, we can't have all of these companies failing. I don't think any one manufacturer is too big to fail, but um, they're all under the same pressures. And maybe, you know, in the, the US, you've only got one major manufacturer. So um, probably is, you know, significant, at least if that, that fails. So maybe remove some of the pressures now rather than foreseeing that in the future you would have to be paying out bailout money to rescue a company that's already foundering. You know, that's not going to be without consequences to the supply of, of wind turbines. So there's an interesting thing here as well, Rosemary, and it speaks to exactly what you're saying. Now I'm going to put a little bit, a bit of a turn on it or, or a piece of information there. Throughout this process, Orsted, who is specifically, they used to be an oil and gas company, now specifically only wind. They backed out of the process. We don't know at what stage they backed out, but they were going to bid or did bid. And at one stage they said, you know what? As a wind, pure, pure play wind and renewable energy company, we're getting out of this. The people that did go all the way through with it, however, and won the, won the bids are two oil companies, BP and, to, and, to, and Total, two of the biggest super majors in the world, right? So now I don't know the inner accounting works of BP and Total. However, I got to think that some of that money comes from the general coffers that was made in the oil and gas world. So that's why they were almost able to push 
some of the wind people away from this auction or out of this auction by r- running the thing higher because they just have more cash. Yeah, well, you need super deep pockets to um, install or to get into offshore. I know when, yeah, I was working for LM Wind Power, a sm- relatively small company. I mean, it's still got you know, 14,000 employees uh, it had at the time that it got bought by GE. But I know that part of the the benefit to LM was that they had a desire to get into offshore but didn't have the capability to to do so because, you know, you can do the most careful product development that is possible, but you're never going to remove the risk that you're going to end up with a, a fleet-wide quality problem. Um, and, you know, if you, because of the increased costs for offshore, if LM had developed uh, offshore, um, yeah, some, some big, spent a lot of money developing an offshore project and installed it, and then it turned out that they had to, you know, go in and replace all the blades, for example, that the company would be over, you know, but with um, a whole of GE behind them, then they say, okay, well, you know, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that our uh, projects are successful, but the chance that that it's not is there and that GE would survive. And so I guess it's the same with, you know, oil and gas companies are um, generally pretty pretty cashed up and it would be fairly small compared to, you know, someone. And they're also used to risky projects, right? Like oil and gas is all about you, you know, you go out, do a bunch of prospective things. Most of them aren't going to pay off, but the ones that pay off are going to pay off really, really big. So they're kind of used to sinking a lot of money and it turns out to not, not pay off. That's their whole business model is based around that. So in that sense, it sounds like a natural kind of company to be developing projects like this. Absolutely. I mean, I per- I've personally been on projects for super majors that have cost $250 million. And when you walk away, they go, yeah, guess that was a miss. We will, we'll go to the next one. Like it's crazy. The amount of money they could spend there. How does the crown estate play in this in the UK? And the crown estate owns all the sea around or the ocean around the UK, right? And same thing in Australia, isn't it? Like, so any offshore project has to get approval of the crown and they actually have to pay the crown does King Charles own our, own our water? Is that what you're saying? I'd... No, I'm serious, right? I, that happens. I, I mean, for, for sure, the, the king is not getting involved in the offshore development process in Australia. That's not happening. It's possible that technically that's who owns it, but in the day-to-day sense, our prime minister is not going to the king to ask his permission if he can put up a wind turbine. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, they're... There, I just listened to a podcast actually the other day, Energy Insiders podcast, and they um, interviewed the Energy and Climate Minister, Chris Bowen, and he was talking about that's one of the major things that he's doing at the moment is um, getting the framework in place to you know start moving fast on offshore wind, and he did not mention having to go to Buckingham Palace to, to ask for, for permissions. Rigitech, a Swiss aerial logistics company, has developed the Eiger drone delivery system to deliver accessories directly to technicians inside offshore wind turbines. So if you forgot your flashlight or your socket wrench, you can have it, or your lunch, more importantly, your lunch, you can have it droned to you. The Eiger drone uses advanced technologies like AI-based flight planning algorithms, precise navigation in windy conditions, which is important, computer vision, and sensor fusion algorithms to drop off payloads with centimeter-level precision without needing to land. So 
Joel, the key here in this drone is that it doesn't land. It basically drops your uh, coffee on the turbine and then goes back to where it came from. Now, I do think this is going to be part of the offshore wind industry, and I think you do too, right? Yeah, definitely. A lot of, a lot of the large players in the offshore wind industry has been looking at this problem for a long time. And this isn't the first drone to do this. There's been quite a few that have done it. Um, it's just waiting for someone to like take that next step and to make it a part of their their operational process, right? Because if you think about it, if if you're up to, if you're up tower and you're offshore, so so SOV is on dynamic, they're on DP two hanging off, you know, a couple hundred meters away. You and your team of two other compadres are up tower, and then someone goes, "Oh man, we need this, we need this part, right? We need this." screwdriver, we need this chipset or something. And now you got to go all the way down the turbine, go get, use the walk to work Ampleman platform, get back on it. Da, 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 da. So a, a problem that if you had the tool in your hand could have, will, would have taken two hours or three even can be solved in 20 minutes. It's going to make such a difference. Even onshore, you know, when you're going around, um, yeah, maintaining wind turbines, because it's such a hassle to get up and down and, you know, you can't do anything just on your own either. You always have to be in crews of at least three and sometimes more depending where you've got to go because, you, you know, you've got to have um, – if you've got someone going in the blade, then you need somebody that's nearby to, you know, make sure they're not having a medical emergency and don't need to be rescued, pulled out, and then you probably need to have someone in the hub too and some sites you also need someone at the bottom of the turbine um, and so because it's such an effort to get everyone up there, you take everything that you might possibly need with you up there. Like when you're uh, doing maintenance work in a wind turbine, you haul just kilos and kilos and kilos of these just heavy equipment sacks. You, you haul them up and yeah, so you're either you know, putting that in the little tiny lift or you're using a, a winch to drag them up. And then at the very top, you don't have anything to get it between, you know, the, the, where the elevator ends and the nacelle starts. It's usually a ladder, so you've got to, you know, you're shoving sacks of heavy equipment through there. And it's, you know, the vast majority of it is stuff that you are taking just in case. So you've got to take all your safety equipment and um, that's, you know, that's good. You should do that just in case you need it. But you also need to take every every tool and then also a variety of common spare parts as well that you might need or might not. I'm just thinking, you know, it would be so much simpler to be able to take what you know you'll need and then um, if something comes up unexpected that your drone can fly it out to you. And, yeah, like Joel said, all of that is magnified when it's offshore because it's not just a drive back to the side office, then it's, you know, it's a boat or a helicopter. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that this is going to simplify things. I've actually written a couple of charters for some of the large offshore wind guys to investigate this and to put money into it. Um, and I know that some of them have gone forward, but uh, like I said, someone with it in their processes I don't know of yet. However, the technology has been around for a long time, right? With this bullet point here, uh, which is very interesting to read if, you, if you've never been in the drone world or you're not in the robotics world. AI-based flight planning algorithms, precise navigation in windy conditions, computer vision, sensor fusion algorithms to drop off payloads, centimeter level position, like all of those things are commonplace, right? All of those things that DJI M300 has, right? They're, they're, there's nothing crazy special there. Like using computer vision, like if, ever, if you've seen a QR code before, right? You can go to GitHub right now for free and download the software to plug into a, a cube, 
uh, that you can buy off of Amazon and build your own drone. And you can buy the software, you can go and download the software for free that will use a camera to see a QR code. And then once the drone sees the QR code, it'll orient itself the way it needs to and land right on it. And it will land within centimeters like that. That's Plank, like Plank Aero Systems was a company out of San Diego. They were bought a couple of years ago by Aero and Aero Environment. They had a whole bunch of military funding to develop this technology five, 10 years ago. And they have crazy videos online of like, Humvees ripping across the desert and a drone chasing the Humvee down and autonomously landing in the box of it and then taking back off again and on boats on water and moving water and stuff, right? Like this, these, it's not, this isn't crazy new things. It's just, uh, it's cool that you're seeing uh, someone go, go forward with it, right? Like try to get, get one of these big vessel companies to bite on it and use it as one of their offerings to the, to the wind industry. This could be a game changer, right? If you're Say you're Orsted and you're looking for your next fleet of boats uh, or SOVs and they say, hey, also on our SOV, you have the capability of saving a lot of time and hours by having this drone that we've designed that can take off of our helipad on a QR code and land on top of the coordinates of, the, of this uh, turbine, drop some tools off and come back. So um, it's, it's cool. It, it's going to be something that's, drones are going to be here, right? They're, they're like a train, get on board or get run over. And this is just one, one more example. Well, I, I just haven't seen it used a lot, and it, it does make sense to me. Like, why are we not doing this right now onshore? Because you, you know how it goes. Like Rosemary was saying, you always forget the thing that you need, and it's at the Granger store about 30 miles towards town. Yeah, but there's a lot of little, like, there's little troubles. There's little stupid troubles that people don't think about that much. Like, okay, now you now part of your three-man crew, one of them have to, has to have an FAA Part 107 drone license. Like, that's that's... But you have to, it, it still has to be regulated, right? You can't just let drones go fly. <laughs> well, you're the aerospace guy. Come on. Well, you're not going to run into a 737. But that's the thing. Like if the drone gets out of control, it could just just keep going until it runs out of battery. Well, that's going to put it in, in airspace in, with manned aircraft. Set it to explode at 100 meters, right? That's the, that's the answer. Yo, once you get 100 meters away, you got to blow up. But that's the trouble. That's the trouble, right? Is you got to have like it doesn't come without its 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 problems. You also have to the tech. You could be up build all the cool technology you want, but you can't fly it without a license. Well, that's a pain in the ass. Now you got an issue. Where like if you're onshore, if you have a guy on the on the base of the tower and you're hey call the radio and say I need a number two screwdriver. Well, he can run into the base of the turbine, put it in the bag, and and uh, zip it up to the top of the tower for you. So. I think it's cool. It's a cool idea for onshore, but I don't think it'll take off onshore because it's too much of a logistical pain in the ass. You got to maintain the drone. You got to swap motors and charge batteries and all that shit. It's too much work onshore. But offshore, I think it's got a big place. It's got to happen. So at some point, one of these countries is going to come to its senses and realize it's going to save time and implement it. There's got to be a way to do it. Come on. We have self-driving cars, for goodness sakes. We can get a drone from A to B without running amok. Hopefully. As soon as that car takes off, it's an FAA problem, Alan. Then we got issues. Yeah, if it ever sprouts wings, Elon is sunk. Yeah. For all you lovers of corporate meetings, Shopify is trying to put <laughs> a stake in those meetings. Uh, so Shopify has introduced a calculator embedded in the employee's calendar apps to estimate the cost of a meeting with three or more people. 
And the tool uses average compensation data, meeting length, attendee count to calculate the cost of a meeting, which in a 30-minute meeting, it's with three employees, it ranges for somewhere between $700 and $1,600 for that 30 minutes. So it's not free. Uh, the company is seeking to reduce unnecessary meetings and has already eliminated recurring meetings with more than two people and discourages meetings on Wednesdays. So Wednesday is meeting free. Engineers must cheer to get to work on Wednesday. Uh, so Shopify expects to cut out about 300,000 hours and 450,000 discrete events in 2023 alone with these initiatives. Now, research suggests that non-critical meetings waste about $100 million annually in big organizations, and this little calculator may not be enough to, to dramatically change that. But I think as we as these operators and OEMs get bigger, Rosemary was in a fairly large company for a number of years. Meetings seem to be all the time, and middle managers seem to be in them from the second they walk into the office to the moment they leave. It's crazy. It used to really drain drain my energy a lot. I, I would be okay if I had a, a day plan with back-to-back meetings that I just sat in, didn't have to run, then, you know, that can be quite a relaxing day. You can switch off your brain and, you know, if everything's online, you just do other stuff at the same time. But one problem that I used to have was um, when I would uh, call a meeting that had, you know, a purpose, I would invite the people um, that I needed there and then they would forward it to, you know, a thousand other people um, and then the meetings would, you know, dr- drag out and also um, get confrontational sometimes because, you know, people would use it like warfare. Like if I fought it to more people on my side, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to win. Um, if you're having, you know, a discussion about <laughs> about what test you should do or what design choice you should make. Um, and so I discovered the feature that <laughs> you can turn off the ability for people to forward your meeting to other people. And that was probably, you know, the single biggest hack that I found for my, you know, workplace sanity in my whole career, learning that you don't have to let people forward your meetings on to other people. You can decide who shows up to your meeting. That is such a Rosemary move. <laughs> I like it. Shut them down. I, I do think when as, as these companies get larger, and uh, we all deal with the operators and OEMs regularly, you, you see that. When, it, when you try to reach out to an engineer at some of these uh, larger operators, it seems like they're constantly in meetings or they're on the road or, or they're in the air traveling to a meeting. It is nonstop. And at some point, you'd hope that they try to focus their resources a little bit better and realize that this can't go on. And maybe Shopify is going to start leading that, leading the the charge from outside the wind industry. And maybe the wind industry will catch on to it. But I do think it is a generic problem across the wind industry at the moment. Part of it, to be honest with you, Alan, is just the nature of the wind industry being uh, distributed geographically, right? So everybody's remote work isn't a new thing in the wind industry. It's been there forever. If you're on an operations and maintenance team, You've been doing remote work in the wind industry since the inception of the wind industry. So try, try, there's a, there's a crafty balance there of a good leader, good managers between getting everybody involved and making sure everybody knows what's going on, but then also taking up their time and their, you want to maintain some camaraderie between, between people and, but you don't want to soak up their whole day. It's, it's tough. I think in our company, we, we try to avoid meetings as much as possible. We have some mandatory ones that we do. On the dinner table? Around the dinner table is a good one. 
Actually, we don't really talk about work at, at the dinner table. Uh, we'd maybe talk about it at breakfast. <laughs> but once once six or seven o'clock hits, we're kind of <laughs> out of business mode. Well, at least we hope we are. Wind turbine blade damage occurs every day all around the world. And finding knowledgeable engineers to get your blades back in service is a serious problem. And as we know, operating with damaged blades is really, really risky. Well, there is a solution. Meet WindPower Lab, your ultimate partner for blade risk management. WindPower Lab's team specializes in all things blades, from in-factory inspections and root cause analyses to aftermarket product guidance and end of warranty campaigns. It's time to get those damaged blades back working for you. Connect with the global blade experts at WindPower Lab by visiting windpowerlab.com. American boat patrols are monitoring waters around new offshore wind farms off the coast of Rhode Island and New York. The Offshore Marine Service Association is concerned that foreign flag vessels are being used instead of U.S.-made ships with American crews, potentially leaving American marine companies and mariners behind. Uh, the Jones Act's enforcer, a ship named after the century-old law, is documenting operations to show potential violations to federal enforcement officials and members of Congress. Now, obviously, Orsted's out in the water, and they're developing South Fork uh, with Eversource. And so the ship has been out there just sort of monitoring what's happening. Uh, Orsted has responded and said that 75% of the vessels supporting South Fork wind are U.S. flagged, but the larger U.S. flagged offshore wind vessels needed for the industry aren't built yet. That's totally true. They're not built yet. Uh, so I, I know we're at this impasse, and these Offshore Marine Service Association is has been putting out some posts and, and writing about this, and they have been talking to Congress people pretty consistently, it sounds like, because they're concerned that everybody's going to go around the Jones Act and the, the, the mariners that are on the eastern seaboard here are not going to get employed. I think that's a reasonable request or looking at it. I just hope it doesn't get too heated. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I mean, this is something we've talked about quite regularly. Jones Act, like it, it's the, the the cart before the horse, or the is 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 the does the horse even exist? Uh, you know, we don't we don't want to leave these mariners behind. No, we do not. But is there mariners that know much about installing offshore wind turbines on the East Coast? So do do these people exist? Um, I think it's it's. I mean, the my my younger self deep down inside starts going like, man, what a what an annoying boat to be just driving around, basically ratting people out, you know? But to be honest with you, I, I don't think it's that bad of an idea to keep people honest. Um, you would think that they would be almost, it wouldn't have to be a, a private entity. You would almost think this would be a public thing, like the U.S. Coast Guard would be out there do, make, making sure that this is done correctly. Um, and and I know maybe maybe within the Coast Guard mission statement, they don't deal with the economic stuff. I'm not 100% sure. I could ask my brother, I guess. He just retired from the Coast Guard. Going to the going to congressmen and stuff like that, do you think that's the right move? Or do you, do you, do they, should they write, it, you know, write something public to the company themselves and say, hey, I, we, need, we want a response here? Do, you, do they take it as a, a journalism thing to, to, to be a whistleblower? What do you do? Are, are they doing the right thing? Yeah, it's showing up in newspapers now because they're making enough noise and putting up press releases. And the Biden administration has put itself into a corner because they, they keep speaking to good paying union jobs for Americans. That would be great, I guess, if 
if they were going to follow through with it. And this is one place where they maybe haven't fallen through so much. And again, especially in Massachusetts, this comes up in my state quite a bit because there's a lot of potential jobs for people in my state. And the politicians in my state try to poo-poo it and try to quiet it down because they're concerned that uh, if it became a big visual issue, that it would hurt them politically. Um, I think, Joel, you're right. We just don't have the people to support it at the moment. But something has to be done. There's got to be a middle ground here. I think you can placate both sides, the Orsteds of the world that need to get a, a job done, need to be able to find people that can do it properly in the United States. So I'm I'm just just for for kind of shits and giggles here. I I looked up the Euro, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, occupation employment and wage statistics. This is from year 2022. This is a 53.5011. Sailors and mar- marine oilers. Basically, these are the people that run the big vessels. And it says in the it says in the United States, if you were to go to support activities for water transportation. Deep sea coastal Great Lakes water transportation, you combine the two of them, there's under 12,000 of those people in the United States for the whole country. And I would be willing to bet that probably 3,000 of them are employed in Alaska. Probably, yes. So if you start looking through some of the employment statistics, like uh, where are these people all at? Well, there's a lot, and I'm looking at a map right now, there's a lot in Washington, Oregon, Texas, Louisiana, Florida. Uh, and then Virginia and New York, there's there's uh, there's a blurb of them as well. Uh, Louisiana being the largest, 6,800. California, Texas, New York. I just don't see that there's that many of these people available. I'm all for getting the jobs, but when I look, when you just even look at the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, they don't exist. These people aren't there. Well, I, I do think we should touch upon it once in a while and highlight that that's going on because it has been getting a little more heated and you see much more press about it now than you did six months ago. And there was discussions about it six months ago, but as more wind turbine parts hit the water, it's going to be, become a political issue. It has to. States like New Jersey, you're going to get involved. New York's going to get involved and then it's going to become a hot potato come election season. GE is looking for you if you know something about lightning protection and wind turbine blades. So GE is seeking a simulations engineer to join their dynamic team specializing in computational and numerical simulation of lightning protection systems, LPS, for wind turbine blades. Uh, GE says you can play a crucial role in optimizing the lightning protection systems through cutting-edge simulations, driving innovation and efficiency in the industry. Uh, If you have a background in engineering or physics, knowledge of simulation techniques, and a passion, Rosemary, a passion for the wind industry, this role is for you. So you can go on GE and, and look up that job. We were just talking about this position a little bit earlier. I, this, I've seen this posting a, a couple of times now, I think. Uh, just a note to GE. I don't think your answer lies behind a computer screen. Lightning is a really complicated subject. And you need to have people have some experience out in the field and been in, in some lightning tests, I mean, for years and understand what's happening in the physics of it. It's really hard to bring somebody new into that role and get to an answer. Uh, we at WeatherGuard have been doing it about 25 years, and we've watched other people who've been in the industry about that long. It takes about 20 years to get to the point where you can understand what's happening. So this is going to be a really fascinating post to see who fills it, because it's, it's a tremendously difficult job to take. It's not a simple task. They're asking you to, to do the near impossible in a short amount of time. 
Uh, so there are people who are interested in doing that. And if so, you better, you know, apply on LinkedIn to GE and for this position and see what you can make of it. You know what I'd like to see, Alan, in the, in the job search industry world, right? This, when you were reading that part of that, uh, job posting up, it screams HR wrote it, right? The HR person went down and talked to the, don't you think that they would be better off if they were like, here's the post from HR, but also. Here's the po- Here's the section of the hiring post from the team you're going to be working with. So whatever, whoever those engineers that you're going to be working with every day, they should have to write part of that directly that says like, hey, if you're going to be on our team, these are the things we do. This is how we operate. Instead of having all this fluff, like if you're passionate about lightning protection systems, like, come on. <laughs> I'm, pa- I'm passionate about some things, but I, I don't think lightning protection systems is one of them. It's like that newspaper. It's like that newspaper article you see once in a while. I think it's on Facebook about the expedition to the North Pole, and how desperate you it, like. There's very little chance of succeeding, yet it'd be a great adventure. Come along, we'd love to have you. It's that that position is going to be pretty much like that. It's a very difficult thing to do. And Rosemary sort of lived next door to that when she worked in the blade industry, and I'm sure she saw some of the hair pulling that happened. It's not easy. Yeah, and um, it's possible that that role is for a position in my old team. Actually, maybe yeah, in my my old uh, old desk. I don't I don't know because there's a couple of different places that it could be, but uh, it's not an easy role to hire for. And certainly in the last few years that I was working for for GE, we always wanted more lightning expertise. It was hard to come by and hard to keep people in the role as well. It's just it's a position that's just gotten way way harder. Lightning protection systems have gotten more complicated to deal with the more complicated blade technologies that they have to protect now. And so, yeah, it's it's just simply gotten harder and you can't just, you know, um, wish <laughs> engineers with 20 years lightning experience out of thin air. You know, it takes 20 years to grow a, a lightning engineer with 20 years experience. Um, so I guess this is the first step, but... Um, yeah, I, I hope that in addition to doing simulations that they're also going to be involved in physical testing and and I think crucially be involved with the claims process for lightning protection systems that have failed in the field because that's the real test. You know, passing simulation, passing um, the lab testing is a lot easier than having turbines out there that are reliably protected from the variety of lightning that they see in the field. I think that's a very interesting point, Rosemary. Probably the first step is to go through all the warranty claims and all the lightning damage that has a, that has happened over the let's say the last five years, and try to understand why that's occurring, and then come up with a plan of attack. You just can't start on the computer screen and hope you're going to make something great. That's not how it's going to work. You're going to have to go back and dig. You might actually benefit from having some some fresh eyes without twenty years experience, because I guess. Um, People with 20 years experience, you know, they spent the first decade of their career working on lightning protection systems that were relatively easy to understand and worked really well. And maybe, are, uh, you know, I can imagine the the things that you have done for a long period of time that have worked successfully for you. It's hard to let go of those when, you know, new evidence shows that that is not, um, not a successful strategy anymore. I know whenever I would get new team members from outside of the wind industry, I would always have them. Uh, before, you know, I gave them all the information and all the training and, you know, indoctrinated them basically in the, you know, the new com- company culture um, and 
about the wind industry in general, I would always have them put their fresh eyes on the problem because, you know, they might have some out there solution that no one else had thought of because, you know, it's not the way that it's done. And that, that could be the key. You need a bit of that, uh, yeah, like fresh influx of ideas every now and then. Absolutely. I think it's like um, once you're an engineer or, or anybody working on a problem for a long time, it's like trench warfare, right? You end up down in the trench and that's all you see is the trench. And when that person comes in and can fly in from 10,000 feet, they may see more of the battlefield and have a fresh idea about where to go next or what, what to accomplish. I think one of the things that this highlights, though, in the industry, in the wind industry in general, is if GE is having this much trouble or not, you know, problems or like outreach for hiring for their lightning specialist role, there is hundreds of asset owners out there with engineering teams that have even less knowledge of lightning, right? If the OE, if one of the big five OEMs in the world is having trouble finding a lightning specialist, then there's, what's the chances that some of these asset owners are going to have one on, on staff? Lucky for those owners and um, operators that there exist experts that they can call on a consulting basis. Turns out there's experts right here. <laughs> little, little weather guard, our load, our lab. I will say GE has been great for my business because we fix a lot of GE blades. Ouch, <laughs> Ben. BP is investing $100 million to upgrade dozens of wind turbines at the Fowler Ridge Wind Farm in Benton County, Indiana. Now, Joel, Benton County is near my old stomping grounds where I went to school at Rose Holman. So it's just north of Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, the wind farm is BP's largest onshore wind farm in the, in the world and consists of four sections. And the capital investment will significantly boost the wind turbines' uh, electricity production, obviously, without expanding the farm's footprint, which is nice, right? So you're getting more out of the wind. New larger blades will be made by Vesta uh, and will replace the 40 turbines at Fowler Ridge 1. The upgrade will extend the life of the wind farm and increase the production by over 40%. Man, that's good. Uh, helping BP reach its goal of having around 10 gigawatts of installed renewable capacity by 2030. The, the project has created, uh, is going to create about 150 construction jobs and it's expected to be completed by the fourth quarter of this year. And all that money goes into the local tax base and, and surrounding community and county government and educational services. So quite nice. So Fowler Wind One, you are our Wind Farm of the Week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.